0: I fell 70 feet and hit this ledge, and then I fell 30 feet and hit the ground. I spent like uh, 81 days in the hospital that year. I had eight surgeries. It took me like 381 days before I started climbing again.
1: hey y'all i'm ryan devlin and welcome to the struggle climbing show where i talk with elite climbers about their struggles and breakthroughs in training nutrition tactics and mental game and also what they're passionate about beyond the fight with gravity hope you're doing awesome today we are chalking up for a chat with a real renaissance man of the climbing scene james lucas As a climber, James is incredibly accomplished and well-rounded with impressive big wall sends that include freeing El Cap's Freerider in a day, along with loads of other big wall sends in the valley, including the FA of Final Frontier, a grade 513B. And while James is perhaps most experienced and known for his work on the big walls, he has pushed himself into other disciplines with the goal of sending V10, boulders, and 514 Sport, the former of which he has done, and the latter of which he is zeroing in on. James just recently sent the classic sport test piece Jailbait, a stout 13C, and today we're talking a lot about his training and tactics for that route, as well as his goals for 514. Now, beyond climbing, James is a prolific writer and photographer. He served as senior associate editor of Climbing Magazine for 30 issues, and he has contributed to countless other climbing outlets from Rock and Ice to Outside Mag to The Alpinist. And if that weren't enough, y'all, he also co-authored Yosemite Bouldering, which is a comprehensive guidebook of more than 1,300 problems in the valley. It includes personal essays and has an emphasis on stewardship. This guy has some of the absolute best stories from his dirtbag days, living in his Saturn in the caves of Yosemite, climbing with some of the biggest names in the sport, and he brings curiosity and stoke to all that he takes on. You're going to love this one. All right, little update from my world over here. I went a little too hard on my recent strength block and my fingers have been feeling a little achy. So I am currently doing a deload week. Maybe a deload 10 days, maybe a deload two weeks. We'll see how it goes. I was really hitting the moon board uh, hard, hard for a while there. However, I am still doing a little bit of work on my fingers. I'm doing a no-hang protocol every day for about 10 minutes. And that has been made very easy with my doorway-mounted hangboard by the Creative Minds over at Fictitious Climbing. Y'all, this is the coolest. It allows you to set up a hangboard in a doorway in just minutes without drilling without screwing, without mounting anything permanently into your walls. I love the boards that Fretitious makes. They're set up really, really well, and they give you 20% off when you buy one with this doorway kit. But you could also just mount any other board that you want to it, a Beastmaker or Lattice or whatever. They even have a pulley attachment that you can grab, so if you want to reduce the load like I'm doing right now as I shift from strength into capacity, you can do that if you cannot drill into your wall whether you rent or you're a student maybe you travel a lot or like me maybe your significant other just doesn't want a chalky hangboard always on display you can store this unit underneath your bed or whatever and in seconds it'll pop into your doorway you get your workout in and then you can make it disappear it's such a cool system hit that link in your show notes or pop by frictitiousclimbing.com to see it in action and to grab 20 percent off a hangboard when you purchase that rad doorway mount The other thing that I'm doing to take care of my fingers as I come off that intense strength building phase is to make sure that I'm giving my body the nutrition that it needs in order to recover quickly and stay healthy. And there is just no better game in town for that than Fizzy Vantage. Y'all, I'm using their supercharged collagen every single day. I'll mix it into my morning cup of caffeine about an hour before I do that no hang protocol. And when I lightly load my fingers, I know that those nutrients are going where they're needed most. I've been a paying customer of Fizzy Vantages for years now, long before they came aboard as a sponsor. Hell, before there even was a show, the Struggle Climbing Show. And I have been able to train harder and stay healthier than I have ever been in the past. And I'm just a weekend warrior, but when I see pros like Alex Magos, Amity Warm, Drew Ruana, Jonathan Segrist, and Paige Klassen, among many, many others, like 50 other top names in climbing, using Fizzy Vantage every day, I know that I am in good company. So if you're looking for that extra edge in your training and your performance, look no further. You're going to love this stuff. Hit that link in your show notes or use checkout code STRUGGLE15 to save 15% off any full-priced order at FizzyVantage.com. That's STRUGGLE15 at FizzyVantage.com. And lastly, just a big thanks to all you patrons and subscribers out there. If that is you, you not only get this episode ad-free, but you also get an extended version of this interview with James with a bunch of bonus content at the very end. So be sure to stick around for that. It's really good stuff. Now, if you're not a patron or subscriber, it would be really, really cool if you would consider supporting the show. It would mean so much to me. I'll tell you more about that at the end. But first, let's cut ourselves a big slice of dirtbag pie with James Lucas. Usually I have an idea when I go into a conversation of like, okay, these are probably like the things we're going to hit on, but you may be the most interesting guest I've had on the struggle to date here, James. So I'm not sure where this is going to go, but I guess let's start where we always start, which is struggle and kind of big picture through the lens of climbing and, and your life as
0: a climber. What does struggle mean to you? Oh man, this is like one of the harder questions. Um, Like looking at the ones that kind of like outline you gave me before the show, this was probably the one I had the biggest, the hardest time with, because I'm not sure if like climbing really is a struggle or if it's like some sort of like self-imposed struggle that we make for ourselves. Like we can always make climbing easier. It doesn't necessarily have to be hard for ourselves. A lot of times it's, um, I guess, navigating that area between, um, like, wanting a challenge and being able to accomplish it. And I guess that's often the struggle for me.
1: Yeah, I like that. It's interesting because it, it does seem like, at least on some of the objectives you've taken on, you have actively tried to make it pretty damn hard on yourself. You've taken on some large projects or at least projects that you've spent you know many sessions many years sometimes working mm-hmm. on so it, it seems like you have the personality type perhaps of seeking out discomfort or seeking out some sense of struggle that maybe is at kind of the right side of the bell curve for mm-hmm. compared to you know maybe somebody like myself where i like a challenge because i like the reward of doing something hard but I don't know how comfortable I am sitting in that discomfort, that struggle (laughs) stew, you know, for very long. And is that something that kind of, has it always been like that for you? Have you always sought out, you know, projects or objectives that elicit a certain amount of discomfort or suffer, or maybe not even knowing if it'll come together? Right. Well, you
0: can't really, I think if something's really hard for you, if you're struggling a lot to get something done then no, you'll probably give up on it. You have to put yourself in a situation where you're able to make it feasible, to be able to try each day, be willing to like wake up at you know 2 a.m. to go climbing. Like those projects, you have to break them down and they can't be this constant struggle. They have to be like little tiny bits where you're not really, you're not sitting in that much discomfort actually. You're just pushing yourself a little bit because, yeah, if it's too hard, you'll, you'll just uh, implode.
1: That's a good that's a good perspective there, I think, is maybe looking back, something, an objective to kind of completion might have mm-hmm. taken years or many attempts, but there's small wins in the process. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. incremental victories. And so you're not, yeah, it's not every day is absolute discomfort and torture. It's finding ways to kind of slice things up so that while the main objective may still be a struggle to get there, there's breadcrumbs of victories along the way.
0: Right. Yeah. It's just, okay, each day you're kind of like, this This is the larger plan I have. Here's each of the steps I need to take along the way. And then you just focus on each individual step. Sometimes it's like waking up early. Sometimes it's breaking in new shoes. Sometimes it's climbing some hands off with. Sometimes it's just taking a little more time to, to rest and recover.
1: Well, I'm so excited to peel back on this a little bit more, especially as we get kind of down into the mental game chapter and, and then open things up at the end to, to really explore a life that's dedicated to climbing and dirt bagging. And you bring such unique perspective on that. So we'll. I'm going to put a pin in some of those things here. We'll come back to those in, in just a little bit. But I appreciated that perspective there. And I think we can just shift our sights towards... Training now, we'll get into our chapters, and we'll at least start to look at struggle through the lens of training. What has been a struggle for you historically or even currently? Where are you struggling in your training?
0: I guess I have a a few different struggles in my training. Uh, I've been struggling with uh, resting and taking the time to recover and saying reasonable expectations for myself. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I like to tell some of my friends, I, I have zero chill. Like, I always want to be out climbing. I, I really love climbing. Like, that, that's one of the hard parts. And to get better at climbing, sometimes you have to not climb. Sometimes you have to take the time to reset, to, like, organize your life, to set up all the things that make uh, climbing better. And so that's one thing I have that I, I struggle with in, in establishing for myself. One of the things I've really been focusing on lately. I've been working a bit with Justin song He used to do a lot of uh, climbing coaching for a few years, and he's getting back into it. And we've been climbing together a lot more. And it, it's been really nice because he's a super experienced climber, and he works a lot more on the soft skills of climbing. And this kind of the idea that, like, 80% of your climbing training should be climbing. Mm. And so... That's actually where we should be focusing most of our energy. Like hangboarding protocols, kettlebell exercises, band therapy, they all serve a a function. But the majority of your climbing training should be on climbing specific skills. Hmm. So there's things like pacing, you know, how quickly you move up the route, where you should be climbing faster, where you should be climbing slower.
1: And that I'm sure I, I just have to imagine because you have spent so much time on rock. Yeah, living in caves and boulders at Yosemite, Mm -hmm. traveling around in the Saturn. As you said, you try to hold yourself back from being so psyched to climb all the time. So I Mm -hmm. I, I would imagine, compared to maybe somebody like myself, where I'm a weekend warrior, I spend probably more time in the gym than I do out at the crag, Mm -hmm. those soft skills are far more developed in somebody like yourself than me and maybe a lot of people who are listening. And... It's refreshing and also, I think, really motivating to hear you still at this stage say, still got to be 80% climbing, still need to focus on the soft skills, because I think that speaks how important that bucket is. Are you training? Are you specifically training soft skills, you know, either in a gym or on the rock? Or are you just trying to program enough climbing in your week where then when you're doing non-climber training, so stuff, you know, what could be general fitness or strength or finger work or mobility there, that's less focused, you know, kind of on the technique. How do you strike that balance?
0: Yeah. Well, what I do is I look at any time I go out climbing as, as a step to becoming a better climber, sometimes they're like specific training, training endeavors. And sometimes they're more like free flow and I wanna use this time to feel good about climbing. And so I try and set an objective ahead of time. And in that, my kind of training goes through that. So when I'm going to the crag, I'm like thinking about, oh, okay, should I be working on pacing here? I might be getting on my project or maybe this is a route I haven't been on. And knowing like I traditionally climb very slowly So thinking about ways I can move through sections faster and being aware of that as I climb and then having it, you know, ramping things up when I need to like dig deep and try hard or when I need to like calm down and relax and just flow through sequences. So then if you're spending a majority
1: of your time on that, right? So 80%, it sounds like, or maybe (laughs) even more if you're getting really psyched and and you're out on a project, the other 20%, let's just call it kind of non-climbing training. I'm, I'm curious what your focus is there,
0: where you maybe struggle. Mm-hmm. I guess uh, like because I start out track climbing, I'm less less able to like really focus and try hard in a gym. And I think the moon board is, it, it's an amazing tool because it makes you fingerboard and it makes you campus and it makes you, channel a lot of the effort into single moves over a really short duration mm-hmm. so it, it it's an amazing tool like all the all those system boards are they're so much better than climbing commercial sets a lot of times I mean you look at a commercial set problem and it a lot of times it'll take like a minute and thirty seconds to climb versus something on the moon board which will take like 15 to 30 seconds. Even shorter for me because I fall <laughs> after the first move. Yeah, I think I'm right there at the bottom with you. <laughs> and so what, what I've done is there's been periods in my life where I usually like, I'll focus on one thing for a while and then stop doing it. And then I have done it enough that I have like some basic benchmarks for myself that I can return to it. So I've done gym training sessions where I've like climbed a lot on the moonboard. And now I can go in and be like, oh, okay, this is roughly where my skill set is at. It'd be good if I like climbed a little bit more on the moonboard a little bit. I'll make me feel snappier on the rock. I'll be able to like be a little more explosive and dynamic while I'm climbing. So I think it's good to learn those skills. And then if
1: you're shifting from a sport focus, like an outdoor kind of sport performance focus to, Maybe some bigger wall objectives. How does that affect your focus of your training? And what are you going to be putting more time and emphasis on if you've got a trip coming up in a couple of months?
0: Yeah. So I guess usually I like, I have like climbing career goals and then I'll break it down into season goals and then monthly goals and then kind of weekly goals. And then right now, like some of my climbing career goals have been to like, I wanted to like free climb El Cap in a day and to prepare for that. I tried it a bit and then I realized, Oh, I need to be a little bit fitter. I need to be stronger. And so I spent a lot of time sport climbing and uh, building up a large base, kind of like 70 to 80% of the difficulty of the, of free rider. so I, so I can move a little bit faster and be a little bit stronger for that objective. And I guess I kind of like use that same approach for everything. So if you're going to go from like a, from sport climbing to some big wall objective, then you want to like get a little more volume, be like climbing a lot, but still be pushing yourself, be working on like your on-sighting and doing things quickly and being able to try hard and knowing when to like calm down and relax and when to like really ramp up the intensity because that's a big thing you have to do on, on wall of seats. And so there'll be like long sections of easy climbing and then cruxes where you just have to like really knuckle down.
1: Yeah. I remember when I had uh, Emily Harrington on the show, she was the, actually the first guest uh, on on the struggle here. And we were talking about Golden Gate in a day and how she, uh, to kind of unlock that impressive accomplishment she was focusing a lot more on efficiency in the quote unquote easier sections, so like the five ten pitches, the slab pitches, so that when she got up to the top to the crux pitches the the golden desert, the a five traverse, she had more gas in the tank and is that something similar to you when when you're looking at free rider is is that an area of focus that you're looking at as well?
0: Well, <clears throat> for someone like Emily, who has a really strong sport climbing background, but less strength in in terms of her traditional skills, we differ greatly in our approaches versus I was a lot stronger in my traditional skills and not nearly as strong in my harder climbing skills. So like, it's hard to climb... Five nine really well over long periods of time. It takes thousands and thousands of hours. I mean, you look at someone like Honald, he's a, he's been able to do that up to five twelve, and that that's what makes him a really good soloist. And so he can move over easy terrain with enormous efficiency, mm-hmm. um, versus someone like Emily, who's really strong. She hasn't had to like. Dial in the super fine techniques of making 5-9 easy because she can just power through it and the sport climbs she's doing are sure enough that where it doesn't really matter. So what I struggled with on when I was doing the free rider is climbing the actual crux of the the free rider, which is a short V7 boulder problem. Like there's a few times where I would climb up to the crux and then not be able to do it. And so I had to essentially get stronger.
1: Yeah, I like that. Well, that that reminds me of a conversation that I had with Peter Croft, where, you know, the guys put in thousands and thousands of pitches of relatively modest, you know, as he would say, kind of more chill type mileage. And as a result is insanely efficient on it, up climbing and down climbing, but then would suggest sport climbing in order to get, to, to top up that tank to do the harder pitches. So, so for you now, are you predominantly focused on sport climbing, bouldering, or as you said, I guess you've got your yearly and seasonal goals. So, does is it fairly equally weighted? How does that look for you?
0: Yeah, well, right now I'm pretty psyched on just the sport climbing. Mm-hmm. I'd like to climb five fourteen. That's kind of like one of my next goals. I wanted to free climb El Cap in a day, and I wanted to boulder V ten, and now I'm like psyched to try and sport climb five fourteen. Those are like, when I started climbing, I was like, oh, those are like cool benchmarks. And I'll try and do those. And then I started to get into it and I was like, oh my God, this is overwhelming. Um, and, and I think they're like fairly modest benchmarks. If you look at the grand scheme of things, it's like what people at the standards for hard climbing have gone up so much, but they're still like difficult enough for me and challenging that I'm really psyched on them. And i kind of like just gotten more into, to pushing my hard sport climbing I need to be bouldering a little bit more or at least trying harder on on moves than I am to kind of it, like I said before get that like grr and that power the same thing you get on a moon board or when you're trying a boulder problem and so that I can apply to some of my sport routes. I think we
1: can shift towards nutrition now, if that sounds good to you. I'm excited to talk about pies. Let's see how this chapter gets us around to that. Uh, First, let's talk about struggle and where have you struggled in your nutrition?
0: Yeah, I guess one of the hard things about nutrition, it's like your relationship with food, Austin, comes from where you're growing up, your financial resources, where you live, what's available. I am the fifth of six kids. And so... I would pretty chronically eat super fast and eat as much as I could because there's all this scarcity mindset. We're like all competing for the same amount of food. Sure. And so that that's like been a long-term habit of mine where I've had to think about like slowing down my eating and being cognizant of that. And then also being a long-time dirtbag I've, or struggled with like, like options in terms of your food well i saw a recent instagram post where someone was comparing like a snickers bar and bringing that to the crag versus mangoes and almonds and they have the same caloric intake and the same amount of like protein and and fats and they they showed the comparison between the two and obviously like the mangoes and almonds were a much better idea because they're far less processed, far less sugar. You'd be able to like have a little more sustained energy from them. But there's also a huge financial cost. You know, right. Where you're looking at something that's like a $1.50 versus something that's probably like $10. And so right. when you're like living in, in your, a cave in Yosemite, it's like, okay, what's the best option for my nutrition? Like, I would often buy like a liter of chocolate milk and that's all I had for a day. Because, and it was, it worked because it had a combination of protein, fat, and carbohydrates, but it was also the least expensive. And so I've struggled with finding a a good balance between managing my finances and having the best food. Um, Yeah. Well, this is,
1: this may be the perfect point for me to bring up pies then, as I think you've developed yourself quite the reputation for being a 515 pie baker. And at least this is, you know, going back to what I think is probably the greatest EnormoCast episode ever made was your first interview (laughs) on Enormo. It belongs in the Smithsonian. (laughs) And I challenge anyone to refute me on that. But I learned a lot about pies in that Mm -hmm. episode. And something that it seems like you were legitimately passionate about. But when it comes to that kind of thing, that's like one of my kryptonites is like pastries. Right. Oh man. They're both. They both give me life, and of course, you know, I'm sure are shortening it, um, and mm-hmm. certainly having an impact on my sport climbing ability if <laughs> I'm uh, eating too many of them. So, um, wh- where do pies fit into your regular diet? And then just kind of using that as a, a, a bit of an example for how you try to build out your nutrition for maybe different seasons, right? Like big wall season versus sport mm-hmm.
0: season. Yeah. Well, I've been moving away from pies so much. They're kind of the thing where it's like a second on the lips and a lifetime on the hips. They're really good, but definitely hard to maintain when you're eating pie all all the time to, to climb hard. And so then it becomes a thing like, okay, when can I have this? Like, When is it a good time for me to put on more weight and be a little more relaxed and less concerned? About my diet and when should I like buckle down? Like when I free climbed Cap in a day, yeah. I'm like five foot seven. I'm not super tall. When I did the free rider in a day, I weighed about 170 pounds. When I did like my third V10, I weighed 150 pounds. There's like oh a- wow, yeah. For my height, that that was a big weight difference. Yeah, and I think that tracks with
1: some of the other climbers that I've talked to on the show here that that switch climbing disciplines over the course of the year. Uh, talking with Mo Beck, and and she, you know, she's much more relaxed isn't the right word, but like she is actually focused on putting on more weight and more calories when she's going to go do a big alpine objective, um, and then maybe when she's getting into comp season, she wants to cut, and and that's going to be a short period of time, but she's going to be focused very much on on her nutrition to perform at the highest levels. And I've heard that from uh, Emily and, and uh, Jordan and Alex. So I think as you switch between those disciplines, that, that kind of makes a lot of sense. What, what do you like to eat? Like what are you taking to the crag that's giving you some energy now that you're focused on sport climbing?
0: What I actually picked up from Alex that was a really cool was he was always eating bell peppers. And I thought it was so weird. He would just eat raw bell peppers. And then I was like, like, you know what, I I should actually try this. And we had his we had his bachelor party up at the Clearlight Cave at Potosi. Yeah, and the, there was like twenty or thirty of us who all went up because we just had it the day before his wedding. And I got everybody bell peppers because I was like, oh, wouldn't this be fun? We're all like eating bell peppers like Alex, and I'd never like really eaten a raw bell pepper. And then I had it and I was like, oh, you know what? This is actually really good. This is like, my body can process this easily. It's like pretty tasty to eat. It's fresh. And so I think it, it, it's this combination of finding things that like will sustain you and give you energy and also things that, that you want to eat and that you're excited to have. And that's just, that's almost just important, like your outlook towards the food. Is as important as the food itself. All right, just a quick little breather here from
1: this fantastic chat with James to shout out one of the sponsors that makes the show available at zero cost to y'all. And also that's zero cost itself. And that is the Crimped Training app. I love this app so much. Crimpt offers 75 different workouts created by world-class coaches and climbers totally for free. And then you can also sign up for Crimped Plus, which I love and is really cheap. And that'll give you access to more than 200 workouts as well as the ability to create your own training plans. Or you can choose one of the templates that are geared towards bouldering or sport climbing so you don't have to put any thought into it. If you are a self-coached climber, I am telling you the absolute best and easiest way to discover proven workouts and stay on track is the crimped app. I have been using it for years. They group their workouts into categories like endurance, power endurance, strength, and conditioning. So there's just no confusion. I mean, you can scroll through these categories, find loads of protocols to level up wherever you're looking to focus on. And it just feels so dang good to complete the workouts and check them off and close out those bars each week as you work towards sending your climbing goals. I am definitely far more consistent with my training when I've got this app keeping me honest and on track. I think you're gonna love it if you haven't tried it. Hit that link in the notes or just search crimped, C-R-I-M-P-D in your app store to download it for free, try it out, and take your training to new heights. All right, let's get back here with James. Let's talk about tactics now and technique. We touched a bit on that in the training chapter. Maybe we want to revisit uh, a little bit of that when you're talking about pacing and, and those kinds of things. But first, I'll just open it up wide here and ask you what's been a struggle for you tactically.
0: One of the challenges for me has been trying to find that balance between how much I should be projecting and how much I should be sending. While there's value in knowing where you're at, I think the constant pursuit of projecting can really wear you down psychologically and and destroy your abilities. Conversely, like never projecting can also cause a stagnation because you're never trying hard. You're never like digging deep. One of the great parts about climbing is that ability to push yourself. And I've struggled in looking at what's the, the best balance between the two and then picking something that's appropriate for the time. And looking at questions like, is the season long enough? Do I have partners? How quickly can I do this? Knowing where you're at and then being able to adjust for the conditions. Yeah. like That's one struggle in my tactics, just knowing like, what's the best use of my time on any given day, on any given week, on any given month. Yeah.
1: What have you found just in your experience? It's very individualized, of course, but this is something that I'm kind of wrestling with myself right now is I'm trying to climb my first 13a this fall and uh, I've identified what I think will be the project it's not an easy one I think it's considered kind of quite hard for the grade but I'm pretty inspired by it and I think jailbait you know being considered one of the hardest of the grade 13c Mm -hmm. was maybe you had a bit of a similar experience here and I'm trying to figure out for myself in subprime conditions which is right now because it's Mm freaking hot at the red you know how much time should i go spending on that thing versus waiting until it gets a little bit better because right now everything feels infinitely harder than i'm sure it will feel in october or november uh, but i also want to know enough about the route to be able to train for it so I'm trying to figure out kind of what that balance is between just going out and trying to maybe flash some lower grades or just climb and clip chains and have fun and have that movement on rock versus, you know, really spending a lot of time on the project. Maybe you could mm-hmm. look at it in the lens of jailbait or some other project if you'd like. But I'm curious what your takeaways, at least for yourself, were and have been from that process.
0: Yeah, I guess when... One of the things I kind of realized about projecting is, and about sending in general, is that you're never really going to be able to like climb to 100 percent of your ability. Like, even like those limit sends, you won't you won't feel like you're trying at your absolute limit because there's things like conditions, you know, the wear on your shoes, your the weight of your rope, the ho- harness, the how much wind there is in the air, all the sure. all those can. Conditions make it really affect your experience. And so you're, you usually can only like send stuff at like at the upper end, 90% of your physical abilities. And so when you're projecting, you're kind of like whittling a route down to that zone. And that's part of why like hard red points sometimes feel so easy because you've spent so much time on them that they, you bring them down to that level. And there's really two different approaches to to an objective like you want to do. You could spend a lot of time building up a broad base, climbing a lot of like 12A, 12B, 12C as fast as you can, and then occasionally trying your 513 project. Or you can just try your 513 project and whittle it down to the point where it feels like maybe 12C. And those really depend on your psych level, what feels good to you. I don't think there's like a right, one of the beauties of climbing is that there's no right or wrong way to approach it. Just what do you want to do? Climbing just on your project will probably help you get it done faster. Climbing on a lot of different routes, it usually takes a lot longer, but it has more long-term benefits. I think such a critical
1: point that you just highlighted there. You you can do it the fast way, or you can do it where maybe if it takes a little bit longer, but then maybe you could click off a few of that grade in quicker mm-hmm. succession afterwards. I could just focus on my 13A, the route that I chose, and hopefully get it done, or build that base, build that pyramid a little bit more, maybe get on multiple 13As and work them all at the same time, and then maybe they all go down kind of bang like dominoes. Yeah. Maybe it's a couple of months later or a few months later, but... You're developing a lot more. I think that's really great perspective. You know, you wrote something when you sent jailbait, and I'm going to quote you here. You said, I saw minute progress. I learned better pacing, better breathing, and how to execute quickly. And Mm -hmm. did you learn all of that on the route just through training by climbing on the route, similar to Mm -hmm. maybe how Chris Sharma would, would do it? Or were you working on those things? Were those things that you knew you needed to be able to do well? In order to send the route that you then worked on in a gym or on other routes well so this
0: past year as i've been like trying to climb 514 one of the things i've been doing is i'll pick a project and i'll just climb on that project traditionally i've taken more of an approach of oh i'll like build a big base and kind of occasionally try things there's some eva lopez her hangboarding protocols talked a lot about rate of perceived exertion. And she had, there was this kind of idea where you wanted to be at this 70 to 80% zone. And that's where you're trying hard, but not trying super hard. And that's where you get the most gross. And so Mm -hmm. I applied that to my climbing in general, just saying that 70 to 80% zone. When I wanted to climb V10, I climbed a lot of V7 and V8 as quickly as I could. And then it actually made it so when I found a V10 that to me, I did, I did them pretty quickly. But this time uh, with the hard spore climbing, I was like, well, I wonder what it would be like if I just projected and if I just focused on these individual routes. And with like something like Jail Bay, I, spent, I essentially spent six weeks just climbing on that route. And I'm, I'm not entirely sure if that was the fastest approach, but it worked. Hell yeah,
1: it worked. That's yeah. sick. and. Yeah. I mean, I think to your point, it also really matters what you're psyched on. And if you find a route Mm -hmm. rather than a grade, and that's what took me so long was like last fall, I wanted to climb the grade of 13A and I just never found a route that I got psyched on, but then I got really psyched on this 12D. So that became the project. I climbed on it a ton in not great conditions, but it was such a fun route that like, I never felt like it was a grind. and, And that was fine. Like I just never found the 13A. Now this year... I was still trying to go for the grade, the 13A, but I was like, no, mm-hmm. I need to project shop. So I shopped a ton of projects. I finally found mm-hmm. the one that I love. And so now I have a route rather than a, pro- a grade that I'm going for. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe I'll get psyched. Maybe I'll just, maybe that'll just be the thing that I get on almost entirely mm-hmm. when the conditions get a little bit better. Have you identified the 14A? You don't, you don't have to share it, but I'm, I'm just curious as it pertains to kind of your training and your tactics for tackling that route or that grade, where are you at in the process?
0: I haven't really found a specific one. I kind of like, I've been trying to like shop around, look for what climbing 14A would feel like. That route, Jailbait, that I tried had an extension that I went up a few times and like you climb Jailbait, which at the end, when I finally sent it, I was like, oh, okay, I could see myself climbing a little further. You do a little more 512 climbing and then you do a V6 boulder and then you summit the formation, which is like really inspiring. Cool. Like, I really like it when you can sport climb and you get to the top of something and you Hell can yeah. like untie and drop the rope. And I was like, wow, like I could stay, I should like keep working on this one route for another few weeks. And there's a possibility that I could do it. But then I like thought about it and I was like, I cannot hang out in California anymore. Like that's too <laughs> mentally taxing on me. And so it, so I'm still like looking around. I've been I've been hanging out in Boulder again, and there's a few routes up at Seal Rock, which I like a lot. I've been trying this route called Thunder Muscle, where I actually just stopped trying it. It's like a 13D or 14A, and there's a hard boulder problem move down low that I've probably tried somewhere around like 150 times, and I think I did the move about three or four times Um, wow so yeah like not very high percent chance on that and so I'll like kind of like work on some skills through the summer think about opening up my hips more and uh crimping harder on my left hand and pulling more with my right heel and like every time I get on a a new route I'll just be like left hand crimp right heel open (laughs) Maybe when I go back in the fall, I'll be able to, and some better attempts, I'll be able to do it. But right now I'm mostly like, figure out what it would take for me to climb 5.14 and and start pushing in that direction. It, like you said, it's a lot easier when you have a specific route in mind. I think that's a lot more exciting than having a numerical grade. There, There's a lot of benefit to both there's times when I've had goals that are like very number focused. Like there was one year where I wanted to climb a Rocky mountain national park for, I wanted to do 50 days. And I was like, okay, like it doesn't matter what happens. Like if I go to Rocky 50 days and go bouldering, like that's great. I'm, I know I'm getting to get something out of that. And right. so then it, it just became this thing where it's like, oh, Okay. Like here's day one was great, day thirty nine was horrible, oh day forty-two was amazing, oh like oh day forty seven was like well, pretty good. By day fifty I like knew how to climb there well. And then there's been times where I've picked specific objectives like a route like Jailbait or the Freerider or Midnight Lightning where I was like, okay, I'm gonna train specifically for this objective. And sure. the when you have a, a route in mind, it's a lot easier to be specific in your training and your preparation for it.
1: What about when it comes to graffiti on one's car? Did had you sent midnight lightning prior to having the midnight lightning on the hood of the Saturn, or was that an aspirational graffiti prior to sending it?
0: So that that graffiti actually came from my friend Nick Barry, we Nick Scary Barry, head- Nick Scary Barry, huh? Yeah, we were like hanging out in Salt Lake City and we all went to a barbecue. And uh, all of a sudden, Nick was like, I gotta leave. We'll-, we'll be back in a few minutes. I was like, Oh, I didn't really know anyone at the party. And he- I was like, Oh, where-, where are you going? Like, I wanna go. And he's like, We're gonna go get cigarettes. And I was like, You don't even smoke, Nick. And he's like, Ah, we'll be back in a minute. And then him and one of our mutual friends, John Starr, who owned it, he would make big stickers and signs. And that's kind of how he made a living. He like printed stickers and signs. They printed out this big lightning bolt and and Nick and I had carpooled. And then we, at the end of the barbecue, we like went back to my car and I was like walking by it and I was like, what's going on? And then I stopped, I stared at it, and I was like, oh my God, somebody painted my house. (laughs) Because Nick had, yeah, Nick had been staying with me when I first erased the lightning bolt. And so he, he thought it was pretty funny to put it on my car.
1: All right, man. Moving into mental game now, and curious. I've got a few things that I want to talk about, but curious just to open it up here. Where you feel that you've struggled, or or do struggle in that area?
0: I guess uh, I struggle a lot with like with fear and being afraid, which I th- I think a lot of climbers do and find it pretty relatable. Everything from like a fear of failure, like oh, I'm not going to do my project. This goal isn't achievable for me. To being, you know, scared that you're gonna die on some rock climb. Sure. I think, like, some of that is perception of, like, okay, when is this fear rational and when is it irrational? And kind of like knowing, being, being aware of how to deal with, the, with each territory. I think in 2004, I saw soloing in Joshua Tree, and soloing had always been this thing where like in my young 20s, I was like, okay, well, rationally, like I can do these these routes. I was soloing a lot at the time. They weren't like super hard. They are you know, I was soloing up to like five, ten long tread climbs in Tuolumne and y- in Yosemite. And I was and this like, was well...
1: Just, so uh, this is when you were on Intersection Rock, right? You
0: took, this was... <clears throat> that that fall yeah so in 2004 i was i was climbing in the north overhang on uh, intersection rock in joshua mm-hmm. tree and i'd done like the there's this five seven exit that i'd done like a few weeks before and then there's a five nine exit and i was climbing up and i was about like 10 feet from the top and I, I lost my balance, I started to barn door, and I fell 70 feet and hit this ledge, and then I fell 30 feet and hit the ground. I spent like uh, 81 days in the hospital that year. I had eight surgeries. It took me like 381 days before I started climbing again. So hold on, let me let, let, before we dive into, obviously this is gonna have a huge
1: impact on fear, and you're talking about rational mm-hmm. versus irrational fear. It's a very rational fear to be scared to deck, if you've literally decked from 70 right. feet and then bounced another 30 feet. So you're nearly it. at the top of this route. I've climbed that route. And yes, of course, it's Joshua's tree grading. So for those who are having climbed there, you know, classic 5'9", it could be mid 10. It could be, I mean, like, you just never know what you're getting into this when you is. get on some of these routes. I climbed some 5'8s and 5'9s at Takis that, you know, felt like they were five eleven. So that old school grading... But you were nearly out of there. You barn-doored. You fell 70 feet, hit the ledge, and then fell the remaining 30 feet. Were you conscious during this?
0: Yeah, yeah, conscious. And then, like, you know, my body was all full in half. I would broken my neck, my, my lower back, my elbow was sticking out. Broke my clavicle and my elbow, my ankle was full in half. I was bleeding out of my skull. And, you know, I was like, oh, maybe I can still go top-roping this afternoon. No. <laughs> yeah, it's like that wasn't a good day for top roping at
1: that point in time. It was a little late for the top roping,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's a little late for the top rope.
1: <laughs> so, obviously, you, you know, you can laugh at this now because you've recovered, but that was, I mean, you were incredibly close to dying. I'm assuming you were, mm-hmm. you know, it was a just a whisper uh, away from dying um, to do that much damage to your body. Uh, most people don't survive a 100 foot fall on a solo, so 81 days in the hospital. 350 some days, it sounds like right from, to when you next climbed, Mm -hmm. what does that experience have for you with regard to your mindset when it comes to climbing, let alone soloing? I mean, just really tying in and moving over rock again.
0: Right. So, you know, before I fell, I kind of knew that like injury was a possibility. You know, it's something that you have in the back of your mind. It's like, oh yeah, I could hurt myself here. But it hasn't happened before, so I I should be okay. You know, you think like, oh, I've climbed thousands of pitches at 5'9". Like, and I haven't fallen on any of them. Why would I fall now? You have like this confidence. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, that's, it's like more of a possibility. And here's what happens if you do fall. And so then all of a sudden it's like, okay, I had this like fear of the consequences. When really it's like, yes, it could happen, but... Then it was still like, I only fell like once out of like a thousand times. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the consequences were really high, but the like risk of it happening was pretty low. And so getting back into climbing, I've been a lot more aware of like the consequences of a big fall or injury and how that would affect. Not, it wouldn't just affect my day, but wow, it it could like affect your entire life. It's like navigating that fear. And I like highball bouldering and like solo occasionally. And I enjoy that feeling of that challenge. It's like a real mental challenge, like keeping your head focused and kind of being aware of what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up because for somebody who – I probably won't solo, you know, like I, I think I might've missed that boat if I had gotten into climbing when I was in my teens or twenties, maybe I would have like the temperament for it. But for somebody who doesn't foresee themselves soloing, what is the allure? I mean, what's the experience like for you? Is it more of that mental challenge and focus more so than like a physical kind of freeness and not, not being encumbered by cams and gear and harnesses and that kind of thing?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a little bit both. It's a little they're like that. I mean, that's one of the things I actually got a lot of uh, out of bouldering. is like you're you don't have anything on you. It's just you and your the rock. With soloing, it's you and the rock for a much longer time. Hmm. But the cl- the climbing's a lot easier. It like it, high ball bouldering is like right in between. I've I haven't really done that much deep bar soloing, but that's like another platform of climbing that kind of combines the two of like being really free but also having this really strong mental component and i think it's something that you can apply to like whatever type of climbing you're into whether it's sport climbing or track climbing it's like having that focus when you're high above your bowl going to the chains even though the climbing might be easy it's still like you you don't want to fall here you, you might be nervous about sending or about, about maybe hurting yourself in a fall. The same with track climbing, you might be like concerned about a piece blowing or about the safety of your situation. And I think those are that mental fortitude is a really, it's an important part of climbing and it's, it's a real skill to develop. I'm curious because you have had
1: that big fall. When you step up to a climb, whether it's a sport climb or a trad or solo, do you have any sort of routine? Do you have mindfulness or breathing or a mantra or anything like that? Um, Because the fear will come up. I mean, no matter if we've done it a thousand times, a million times, or some days we just have this fear of falling. It's a very well-placed evolutionary um, control uh, for us. So how do you manage that when you're stepping up to a big climb? Like
0: one of the things I realized is there's this famous quote that says, fatigue makes cowards of us all. When you're tired, you're more likely to get scared. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's certainly true of me. And so if I'm looking at something scary, then I make sure that it's well within my abilities. If it's hard and it's scary, then I do my best to prepare ahead of time to make it less scary through through practice through top roping, through right pointing a lot of times on I, I get really scared and even trying a new sport route and so uh, a lot of times I'll like clip up I'll work a sequence as best as I can I try and make it so that there's fewer unknowns and so that I'm better prepared for it. So I while I don't have any like specific mantra, I do have like different approaches that I, I use and I'm also... I'm fine, like approaching a climb and being like, "Oh, you know what? Like, other people might be brave enough to like not have to top rope this section first. They can like just go from the ground." Uh, but I'm not that person. Like, I might get scared, and that that's okay. I'm just gonna like figure out a way to process my fear and be okay with it. And then <clears throat> sometimes I'll be like, "Okay, I'm not able to." get rid of my fear of this climb or of something happening. And so then I have I make a decision how much I want to do this. And then sometimes I will just do something scared.
1: Yeah, man. I like that. Thank you. That's really great stuff. Okay, my last question in this mental game chapter here is what you've learned by doing stand up comedy. How has that <laughs> applied to the mental game of climbing?
0: Oh, I've learned a lot about preparation and execution. It's sort of like seeing someone red point a route, like a really hard uh, route at their limit. You just see the end result. You don't see all the work they've put in. You just see someone like Dave Chappelle get on the stage and you're like, oh yeah, that guy's funny all the time. Like mm-hmm. he's so relaxed up there. What well, you don't see is you don't see the 10,000 hours he put up on other stages where he absolutely tanked, where he like bombed, where he like didn't do so well. You just see, see the finished result. And so I think what I learned from doing stand up is that it is, it's like anything you have to put in the work and, and you figure out what works well for you and how you, you can execute things, how you can tell jokes with certain timing, um, how, where you need to make pauses where you need to pace more, where you should be like, oh, my audience isn't really attentive right now. Oh, they're really like laughing and they love this part. I should slow down and being aware and being present in the moment. Let's now
1: kind of open things up and talk about you beyond your rock climbing and things that you're passionate about uh, when you're not battling your way up a route. And what is that for you?
0: (laughs) For me, I really love uh, storytelling. I love helping people see things in different lights and just presenting ideas and concepts to people. Um, And I've found ways to do it through writing. I've done some video projects, which have been really great. I really find a lot of enjoyment in photography. And those are a lot of my own passions. And a lot of times they like bleed into each other. I end up telling a lot of climbing stories and take a lot of climbing photos. I've uh, Uh, A few years ago, I worked with John Glassberg, and we put together a series of six kind of Saturday Night Live style skits about, like, the climbing gyms, and and that was a great project. Um, Yeah, those are great.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I mean, you you really are like a creative, kind of like a multidimensional creative. You're you're writing, which is maybe what you're most known for, or certainly what supported your dirtbag lifestyle for for a long stretch there, maybe still does. I love your writing style. I think that it's personal, it's accessible, it's not like gratuitously verbose, but it's also not watered down. It's just like, I think it's very poetic. It strikes like a really good tone, at least for me personally, what I like to consume. I I think you've written really beautiful pieces. And then your photography is incredible. You've got climbing photography, you do portraits. Um, You also seem to gravitate towards photographing the moon in the phases of the moon (laughs) quite a bit and they're stunning photographs so maybe just kind of with regard to your own writing as well as your own photography what are you most drawn to what are you most inspired to focus on and where where are you going to be taking it in the coming months and
0: years yeah those are so such great questions i think i'm drawn I I really like the art of storytelling and taking maybe something that isn't particularly interesting or something plain and making it exciting somehow. Recently, like taking pictures of the moon, it's like, oh, there's something we see almost every night, but how can I like make this unique? What can I learn about this to make people feel passionate about it? Like one of my goals for the summer is my friend made me some peanut butter cookies a little while ago and we were eating them. And I was like, wow, these these are pretty good. You know, I have a love for pies. I have a love for donuts. Like you, I, I love pastries. Cookies are great. And all of a sudden I was like, wow, these peanut butter cookies are pretty good. I wonder what the best peanut butter cookie is. Okay, now how can I like, tell a story about the best peanut butter cookie. Like what makes a good peanut butter cookie? Where do you find a good peanut butter cookie? And I've been like going around the front range of Colorado looking for the best peanut butter cookies. And there's like, there's some bakeries uh, uh, because it's like Boulder, they don't make peanut butter cookies. They're worried about people's peanut allergies. And so it'd be like, I would show up at Lucky's and they'd be like, oh, there's no peanut butter cookies here. Or I called up Moxie's Bakery and they're like, no peanut butter cookies here. And so then it's like, okay, well, where else can I go to get peanut butter cookies? Like, all of a sudden it's just like, now I'm like off on this adventure looking for an amazing peanut butter cookie and like trying to figure out like, okay, does it need to have chocolate in it? Like. Is that still a peanut butter cookie, or is it a peanut butter chocolate cookie? like <laughs> no, uh, and so it's like here's this like mundane thing. It's just like a, this round little peanut butter cookie, and all of a sudden it becomes like a vehicle for exploration and excitement, and I love taking those small ideas and and like looking into them so much that other people can get excited about it too. It's like, oh wow, someone put like a lot of thought into this peanut butter cookie or what the greasiest moon board hold is or life or like the best ways to be a dirt bag. I just, I guess I, I really like it that like those storytelling aspects where you're like examining something and really drawing it out and making it this, making it into its own universe.
1: I love that too, man. And I think you do it incredibly well. What's the, most common or desired outlet for those stories as you tell them? Where can we find them? Is it on your Instagram, your website? Are you partnering freelance with various publications? Where where can we find these Wes Anderson
0: slices of life? Mm, you see, let's see. I guess I have a lot of different avenues that I put work out at. I still occasionally write for climbing. I'm doing a, another guidebook for Bishop.
1: You you got the massive one that you did for Yosemite, right? Yosemite bouldering.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yosemite bouldering. And then I'll do a a Bishop bouldering guidebook. Those are like amazing outlets for not only providing like information about an area, but also providing some of the history. And it's, they're really exciting dives because it's like, okay, I have this map and how do I show someone how to get it somewhere? Like what's the most efficient way? Like, how? What are some like tips or some like ideas that I can give someone to really guide their experience to a place? And so cool. that that's one avenue. I post a lot of my photography work on my Instagram stories, and I like occasionally posting a, a series of photos, maybe thirty or forty photos to tell a story. That's one avenue that I really like. I I also have a website where where I'll post a lot of my writing articles I've written. For climbing or in the past, as well as a lot of my photo work. I'm hoping in the next few years to put together sort of like a pre anthology of my work.
1: I love that. Yeah, I encourage anybody who's listening right now to do yourselves a favor and clear a few hours of your day today, tomorrow, no later than tomorrow. And (laughs) just like go down a rabbit hole of James's work. It's the writing is really delightful. And the photography is beautiful and, I think, creative and provocative. It's really good stuff, man. I applaud you for it, and I'm excited to see what you come up with next.
0: Man, thanks a lot for the kind words. I appreciate it.
1: Well, let's talk about dirt bagging for a minute here. This is an area of climbing culture and climbing lifestyle that I'm fascinated with. I think a lot of people are. I think it's romanticized. I also think it's important. And you've been described variously by Cedar Wright and yourself and probably many others as this last dirt bag, the last dirt bag, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but of a generation of dirt bags living in the caves and sleeping in the trunk of your car, your car, the Saturn is no longer around. And I believe you have a physical address in Boulder, Colorado these days, mm-hmm. but you are still a dirt bag, I presume, in heart and soul and certainly in history. And so I'm just curious... What that even means to you. What is a dirt bag? And then I'd love to just explore that world for a minute.
0: Yeah, I always struggle because I think dirt bagging has kind of a, a negative connotation where there's this idea of people being uh, cheap. But I think what it really is is like dirt bag climbers are people who they put their passion for their sport. For the love of climbing, like ahead of everything else, mm-hmm. that this is important to them, and so this is what they'll focus on, and they'll do whatever they can to make it work. And I think that's the essence of being a dirt bag: is you're so passionate about climbing that you'll do whatever it takes. I mean, the, a, a dirt bag isn't necessarily a, a
1: collection of things or a absence of things. It's more about kind of internally, what, what's that drive, what inspires you? It's a mindset more, more so than a physical or logistical kind of reality. But that said, that mindset often does put you in some sort of physical, logistical reality that tends to be pretty scrappy. Yeah. And I'm curious, like if you were to write a pamphlet, if you had a sticky note and you could write down a handful of bullets, just a few. You know, what is the rule book? What's the playbook for being a dirtbag?
0: Let's see. Probably you need to want to go climbing and you need to want to go climbing a lot. And (laughs) if if you don't want either of those first two things, you probably shouldn't be reading the rest of the list. (laughs) All right. So let's say you want those first two things. Okay. Uh, You want those first two things. So you
1: want those first two things, and um, you want to be able to live on $2 a day. Okay. What have you learned in your um, mastery of dirt bagitude? Because maybe you aren't the last dirtbag, right? Yeah. Cedar's got this dirtbag fund going. People out there are discovering the simple Buddhist life of living in a cave or living in the back of a Prius, but they don't know how to do it. What did you learn over your years of dirt bagging that maybe the next generation of dirt bags could, um, could learn from,
0: could take advantage of. That mentality is the important part that like, I, this is something I want and I'm going to make it work. And I think that attitude is the defining thing you need to have. Like you have $2, right. And you, you just have to have as much ingenuity as, as possible. Should I, Be looking at buying the the one liter of 2% chocolate milk, or should I like work on the 1% chocolate milk? What is there like a 30 cents difference there? Because maybe I can get like, you know, a pack of gum and chew on that all day. What, like, it's this idea of you're going to make this happen and sticking to it and being resolved to like wanting it so bad. And I think it really helps to surround yourself with other people with that same attitude mm-hmm. you'll are like really focused and you'll end up like building off each other. I think like one of the most important things in climbing and one of the things I really like about is that we're all climbers are fairly driven folk and we surround ourselves with other very driven folk and we can really rely on each other like when we're struggling
1: uh here here to that and and what a pro look at you just bringing this thing full circle to struggle at the end you're you're making my job easy on me james man thank you so much uh for sharing the stories for opening up and also for what you have and, and continue to do for the sport it's uh it's great to connect and good luck with your project let's both get at it and would love to connect again
0: yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. It's a pleasure talking to you, and I, I, I really appreciate the, the chance to contribute. <laughs>
1: And that there wraps up our deep dive into the mind and the methods of the last, but not really the last, dirtbag around. What did you all think of this one? Let us know. You can find us on IG at James underscore Lucas and at The Struggle Climbing Show. Now for patrons and subscribers, your edit has some killer bonus content at the end here where James explains the three different climbing partners that we should all have. He shares some rare stories of his climbs with his buddy Alex Honnold, which includes a look at how James played a role in Alex's historic cap solo and what alex said to him when he called him at the top of that climb and also some tales of dumpster diving gone wrong all of that and more with james keep listening and when the outro music ends that bonus content will begin now in a second i'm going to hit you with my takeaways from this far-reaching conversation but first let's support the brands who make it possible for this episode and so many others to come to y'all at zero cost Give it up for Frictitious Climbing, makers of the revolutionary doorway mount for your hangboard. No drilling, no damage, it fits pretty much any doorway and it is up and down in seconds. This thing is so rad y'all. Check out how it works along with all of their fantastic hangboards and accessories over at frictitiousclimbing.com. Score 20% off a hangboard when you pick up a doorway mount. I love this setup, it is so, so cool. And a big thanks to Fizzy Vantage, the official climbing nutrition sponsor of The Struggle. Try their weapons-grade whey protein, their vegan PowerPlex protein, their supercharged collagen, and all of their science-backed products to help you level up your training and performance. In Europe, you can find it at the Epic TV online shop and Banana Fingers online shop, and in the U.S. at Select Gyms, and of course, at FizzyVantage.com. Hit that link in your show notes or use code STRUGGLE15 at checkout for 15% off. And lastly, a shout out to Crimped, spelled C-R-I-M-P-D, which is the most advanced and motivating training app that I have ever used, you guys. It is free to download. It offers loads of protocols for boulderers and sport climbers, and it just takes the guesswork out of how to program training. So if you are a self-coached athlete or if you've hit a plateau in your fitness, check this one out. Hit that link in your notes or pop over to crimped.com or just search Crimped, C-R-I-M-P-D, in your app store to check it out. lots of different takeaways from this one with james first as someone who's kind of always been a jack of all trades myself i'm really inspired by how james has set goals for himself across all disciplines of climbing so big walls sport and bouldering and you know for me i'm not going to hit the numbers that he's doing but i really like that well-rounded kind of seasonal approach to setting objectives and i have already updated my list of goals to include boulder and multi-pitch along with my current sport goals that I've been talking about. The other themes that come to mind here with James are resilience and joy. To bounce back from a near life-ending injury and to commit to a dirtbag lifestyle, all for the joy, and of course the struggle too, of moving over rock. I just, I personally find it really, really inspiring. This is a really special sport and an even more special community, and I just get so psyched when I connect with folks like James. All right, that clips the anchors on this episode. Thank you, as always, you who are listening right this moment in your car or at the gym or at work when you should be working and instead are listening to podcasts. You are a hero, you, quiet quitter, for listening to this podcast. If you guys would like to hear more stories from James, as well as gain exclusive access to other perks such as pro clinics conducted by pros on topics such as endurance, finger power, moonboard, big wall tactics, and more... Not to mention supporting me as I work my harness off down here in the podcast slash utility closet. Pop on over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show or simply subscribe through Apple podcasts and check it out. You can stop anytime. There's no obligation. So feel free to sample that pro access membership. And if you think it sucks, just cancel. But I hope you like it. Hey, did you know that The Struggle's carbon neutral in partnership with the Honnold Foundation? Well, you do now and you should by now because I talk about it every episode. They are doing amazing work to bring clean energy to communities around the world. Check out their latest grant recipients over at HonnoldFoundation.org and toss them some love if you can. It's really important work that they're doing. Lastly, The Struggle is a proud member of the Plugtone Tone Audio Collective, a diverse group of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. They're doing such rad stuff. I'm so grateful to be a part of this community. This show is produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin. I hope your training and climbing are going great. And if you're struggling, well, just know that the struggle makes you stronger. See you next week.